Welcome to the Good Shepherd Church podcast. Good Shepherd is a gospel-centered church plant in Southeast Lakeland, Florida, and our vision is to join God's mission to see a glorious city filled with disciples of Jesus who are secure as children of God, connected as the family of God, and engaged as stewards of God's love to their neighbors and beyond. Here you will find sermons and other resources to help root and equip you in your true identity in Christ. We're glad you're here. Hey everybody, my name is Jeremy and I am so excited finally to have these candles here in front of me. And by the way, this is the first Christmas we've ever been able to have real candles. If you remember, if you've been here in previous, if you've been here in previous years, uh, you know, since we were meeting in a school, we didn't want to set the thing on fire, so um, so we had the fake candles that you had to do the little switch on. But now we get the real deal. Now let's just hope we don't burn the place down. Um, so we're jumping in. We're we're jumping into a brand new series. To maybe uh, the idea of Advent is new to you. Um, And hopefully today is going to set the stage somewhat for what is Advent? Why do we do this candle thing? Why do we stretch out what used to be just a day, December 25th, into four total weeks? Um, And hopefully this very first section of Matthew 1 will help us to set that stage. Um, But first, to set the stage for our passage particular to today in the beginning of Matthew 1... If you've noticed recently, you see all over the place, maybe some of you have even licked the swab and put it in the mail to 23andMe or Ancestry.com or one of those services that will then send you back a sheet with all of the various lineages that you have and your 23% you know, Spanish and your 14% uh, Portuguese and your you know, whatever percent African and who knows all the different things you may have found out about yourself. That seems to be a, a really exciting thing that our culture has really grabbed onto right now. I mean, you can even see it in, on PBS right now. There's a show called, um, who do you think? No, it's called Finding Your Roots. Uh, another show similar to it that used to air on NBC and now is on TLC called Who Do You Think You Are? And both of these essentially do the same thing. They grab a celebrity because it's way more interesting to watch a celebrity than a normal person learn about their heritage. And then they walk back as many generations as they can find and try to connect some portion of this person's backstory to who they have become in their celebrity. For instance, Jim Parsons, Big Bang Theory, Sheldon, right? Um, He learned through this TV show that his sixth great-grandfather was the premier architect, the go-to architect for King Henry the, I'm going to forget which one, oh, I'm sorry, King Louis the 15th. The premier architect for King Louis the 15th. And not only that, but he was, it is recorded that he at least had one audience with two guys by the names of John Adams and Ben Franklin. So he at least was an acquaintance and at most was in the highly intellectual circle of the day. And so you connect that six generations ago to who Sheldon is 
And in real life, it seems like what Jim Parsons is actually like, that he is pretty intelligent. And it starts to make some sense out of how he became who he is. The question before us today, and really for the next four weeks, as you can see on the screen, is who is Jesus? And we're going to, through Matthew 1 and 2, through the maybe some of those basic Christmas narratives that you've heard a million times, we're going to specifically try to peel back the layers at doing what Matthew does best. What Matthew does very well is he, he connects the Old Testament to the coming of Christ. And he says, and here's where that you can find that proof, and here's where you can find that proof, and here's where you can find this. And all through the next two chapters, if you are somewhat skeptical of who is this Jesus, if, if this is new to you, if this is maybe old, but you've lost some of the grandeur and the glory and the majesty of the wisdom of God and how it's playing out in real human history in real time and what we're celebrating this Christmas, then hopefully this will be for you. So we're going to see over the next four weeks that Jesus is four things. He's more, but for the sake of our series, he's these four things. He's the long-expected Messiah, Savior, desire of nations, and true Israel. And we'll see those four things as we walk through, excuse me, as we walk through Matthew 1 and 2. Advent then helps to set this stage for us. The reason why this is not just a one and done, like we do a Christmas Eve service and then a Christmas day, and then we're done. But there were 400 years of silence and 2,000 years of human history that were all pointing in one direction prior to the coming of Jesus. And so what we're doing with these candles right here is we're living back into what it must have been like to be a first century believer. To be maybe a first century Jew who had read these Old Testament stories about this coming Messiah, and yet, where is he? Where is he? I keep looking for him, but I don't know where he is. It's been 400 years since we've heard anything from God. Where is he? And so what we're going to do is we're going to jump in today specifically with what does a family tree have to do and what questions can it answer about who Jesus is. So let's read Jesus' family tree from Matthew 1, 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Sol Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Isaiah, and Isaiah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, 
and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Almost there. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So Father, I would ask now, it's, it's my heart's desire to be caught up myself in the glory of your wisdom, to, in the glory of your redemptive plan uh, enacted throughout human history and here written down for us that we can study, that we can know, that we can believe, that we can put our faith not in some pie-in-the-sky idea, but in real people in real time through whom Jesus came. And so I pray for all of us that you would boost our faith today that our faith would become sight, that our prayers would become praise, that we would more and more believe, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, that you are king. And so, King Jesus, would you come? Uh, and would you make a way for us this Christmas, as you do every day, to be right with our Father in heaven? Thank you that you have made that way through the blood of your cross. And that way will be open for all who trust in you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So genealogies, in a sense, in the same way they did for Jim Parsons, genealogies help us know who we are by helping us know where we came from. And so this genealogy helps us to know who Jesus is by where Jesus came from. Now, most likely, if you've ever begun reading, when I was first a believer, um, I jumped in to the Gospels, which is a great place to start, and I started with Matthew, and I started in like verse 2 or 3, and by the time I got to verse 4, I was like, okay, let's see what uh, chapter 2 has to say. Because it can just be like this wasteland of who are all these people? I can't pronounce half of them. I can barely read them. What am I supposed to do with this? There, it is very purposeful that this was written down first by Matthew. And there's two primary goals in what Matthew is trying to communicate to us, and it's these. That we have a Messiah who is both a kingly Messiah as well as he is a priestly Messiah. And we're going to uh, unravel both of those two things in the next few minutes. First, we've got to ask the question, what is a Messiah? We may have heard that name thrown around, you know, in the same way that you've heard of, and you'll see here in, in a minute in the next slide, you know, we tend to think that Jesus Christ is his first and last name, but the word Christ is that very word for Messiah. And so 
you can see it bookends with this. Verse 1 and verse 17 both say Jesus is this. He is the Christ. So in the same way that in the Old Testament, the word, the Hebrew word is Messiah, translated into Greek, that same word is Christ or Christos. And so what this is saying is Jesus, this is a title. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And there are two main jobs of the Messiah. Uh, and you can, you can also pronounce this or translate this as one who is anointed, one who is set apart. There were two primary roles in the Old Testament that were anointed and set apart, that of the king and that of the priest. So first in 2 Samuel 5, you see the elders of Israel coming around King David and anointing him with oil, setting him apart for a very specific job to lead the kingdom of Israel. In Leviticus 8, you see Moses anointing Aaron with oil, setting him apart to be high priest over the tabernacle. Primarily, with a few exceptions in the Old Testament, those are the two main jobs that those who were anointed ones had to do. And so in a very same way, we can say that the two main jobs, according to what it means to be the Messiah that King Jesus came to do, were both king and priest. So you could say it like this. This genealogy is the legal genealogy, meaning this traces not as much the specific bloodline of Jesus. Luke does a better job at the specific bloodline of Jesus. This more so follows the kingly line of Jesus through, and again, Luke starts in Adam. There's a specific purpose why Matthew here starts in Abraham because he's focused on a very specific thing. And so you can see that the two main people that are set up here are David and Abraham. That's what kicks off this genealogy. And so he's setting this as, this is the main focus of what I want you to see. Here's how it all connects. It connects to Abraham and it connects to David. Why does that matter? If you go back to Genesis 12, Abraham was called up and set apart by God to leave, to leave everything he had ever known. And he was told to look up and see all the stars in the sky. And he was told that as numerous as the stars in the sky are, so I will make of you a nation. I will make of you a people and I will call them my people. And so Abraham does. He goes, he sets off, and he doesn't know where he's going. And in the process, God meets him. It's not exactly how he expected, but he does end up having a son. And that son has sons, and that son has sons, and so on, and so on, and so on. And you follow that line all the way from Abraham now down to David. This, these few children have now turned literally into an entire nation. And that nation is now crying out and asking to be led. They're asking for a king. Please, will you send us a king? And so God does. And he gives them King David. And so the connection from Abraham to David is this growing nation that now David becomes the king over. But that's not the end of the story. But we're not there yet. Joshua Abraham Norton was a twice bankrupt businessman in San Francisco. He was born in London. He was raised in South Africa. And 
one day, as he, as he went about his business dealings, he had almost nothing to his name, and he approached the Evening Bulletin newspaper, the San Francisco Evening Bulletin newspaper, on September 7th, 1859, and he gave them a little note and asked them if they would publish it. And because it was just so wacky, they decided that they would publish it. And here's what it said. At the peremptory request of a desire of a large majority of the citizens of these United States, I, Joshua Norton, proclaim myself emperor of these United States. September 12th. 1859. He then went on to carry himself as the newly pronounced emperor of these United States. He, he developed kind of a following in San Francisco. And as you know, San Francisco is kind of a wacky place. And so they even today have a monument for him. His tombstone actually says these words, emperor of the United States, Joshua Norton. Here's the question. Is Jesus just another Joshua Norton? Is Jesus just another lunatic who comes on the scene, proclaims himself king, and then slowly fizzles away? Maybe. As C.S. Lewis says, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he actually is who he says he is. How do we know the difference? Verses 1 through verse 17 begin to tell us the difference. Joshua Norton had no authority by which to claim himself as emperor of these United States. By the way, Napoleon III invaded Mexico around this time, and, and then he proclaimed himself um, the, the emperor of the United States and protector of Mexico, just to make sure that Mexico was going to be okay too. He's got them, don't worry. But what's the difference between the two? Jesus has generations and generations and generations of real people, real-time people. You can go back in the history books and look them up. You can follow the genealogy, and you can see how A plus B equals Jesus. And so again, this is a bit of an apologetic. This is a, a bit of a defense for the faith. How can we know that Jesus is who he says he is? Because there is generations of proof that we can stand on. There's generations of lineage, not just any lineage either. It's one thing to just prove he was a guy, but how about to prove that he is king? This lineage from Abraham to David to Jesus shows this is a royal line. And from a royal line has come a ruler. We would expect, though, that this kind of a lineage would be filled with royalty, filled with nobility, filled with just amazing people of great character and great courage and stories that would fill the history books of how wonderful they were, all leading and prefiguring and pointing to this one who would come, who would be both God and man. If you're familiar at all with the Bible, though, you may have noticed that some of those names seemed a little strange. For instance, verse 3. Judah and Tamar. Not to go too deep into any of these stories since there are children present, but essentially, Judah and Tamar is a story about Tamar having twins by her father-in-law, 
Judah. We know verse 5, Rahab. Rahab sold herself by trade. Verse 6. Look at verse 6. We don't even have to go much further than that. David was the father of Solomon, not by his own wife, but by the wife of another man. Solomon, the heir to the throne, was the product of an adulterous relationship. These people have a checkered past. So do I. So do you. In varying ways and in varying levels, but we are all in the same boat. And so we would think if that's the kind of mess that's in this lineage, everybody knows you can think back to certain family members who have really blown it. And you can see how that family member for generations have wreaked havoc in certain ways in your family history. And you would expect that in the very same way in Jesus's family history, there would be some havoc that had happened. And sure enough, there was. Because if you jump to verse 11, this is the havoc that began to happen at the time of the deportation to Babylon. What is happening with the deportation to Babylon? Around 600 BC, Jerusalem was conquered by Babylon. Their, their sin, their idolatry, their injustice, their lack of care for anyone else other than themselves had just begun to turn them so inward that there was no hope for them except for God to give them over to their enemies. And so he does. And so Babylon comes in, sacks Jerusalem, brings all of them essentially into slavery. And for years and years, they keep wondering, is this it? Are we done? Is Israel just a figment of the past and no longer going to be something? Is God actually going to be faithful to his promises? Or did we just get wiped off the face of the map because we screwed up too bad? Have you ever asked yourself the question, is God going to wipe me off the map because I screwed up too bad? Is there a time or two or five or 10 or 20 in your life where you can say, God should have nothing to do with me anymore. In fact, he would be totally right if he didn't. And so Jesus enters in as the Messiah, not only as the king, but also the anointed priest the one who stands between God and man, making intercession between the two, reconciling between the two that otherwise would only be as far apart as east from west. Right? We love the idea of Jesus as a king. We, yes, Jesus, come back. Make everything right. Oh, this is going to be so great. This is why, like that picture in uh, the very end of the movie, A Christmas Story, when it's Christmas evening and the kids have opened the presents and everything has died down and it's, there's a fire in the fireplace and there's the twinkling of the lights on the Christmas tree and the lights are dim and low and husband and wife are arm in arm and they're sitting on the couch and the kids are asleep and all is well. Everybody wants Jesus to come and make a just and beautiful and peaceful world. Nobody would object to that. What we do object to is the statement that the only thing keeping Jesus from doing that is me and you. 
right? The reason that this world is not the way it's supposed to be is not because of him, but because of me and because of you. The reason for the brokenness in this world is, and you can see it in person after person after person, brokenness after brokenness after brokenness. If you consider, maybe not your outward actions, but for sure the thoughts of your heart, we'll identify a lot more with Tamar and Rahab and David and Bathsheba than we will Jesus. And so is there hope for us? Is there hope for God's coming kingdom? Is there hope for the line of Jesus? If each one of us are only maybe a a few wrong decisions away from totally screwing up our lives, is there hope for us? Maybe if God was only, um, excuse me, if Jesus was only a king, that would be one thing. But if Jesus has been anointed priest, then our bigger problem is not our sin. Our bigger problem is our unbelief that Jesus can't fix it. Our bigger problem is our unbelief that we can out God. Our bigger problem is that in some way we think that we have run out his patience as if he had enough patience that there was some kind of an hourglass that eventually it would run out. That's not who God is. Because he is not only a king, he is also a priest. Look at verse 17. This begins to tie it all together, to bookend all of the mess in the middle. Matthew makes some sense out of this. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14. In the Hebrew numerical system, seven is the perfect number. And so what's more perfect than seven? How about seven plus seven? 14 is like the perfect of perfect, the perfection of perfection. And so what is Matthew saying? What is the Holy Spirit trying to tell us through Matthew is that God has had a perfect plan all the way through, all the way from day one, all the way before you were even a blip on the radar. God has had a plan that he has been working from Adam to Abraham, from Abraham to David, from David to, uh, to Babylon, from Babylon to Christ. Notice there is a massive failure in the middle of that. It's not like great man, great man, great man, Jesus. It's great man, great man, super big mess, Jesus. We may not be able to find ourselves in the great man, great woman, great man, great woman, but we can sure find ourselves in that deportation to Babylon part. That's where we live. And without Jesus, we would continue to live there in exile, away from him, justly deserving any wrath he gives, justly deserving the separation because we've been the ones who've run away. But as the priest, and as Hebrews says that I've been talking about for the past few weeks that I just can't get out of my head, as the great high priest that Hebrews has been talking about, Jesus stands between God and man. And he takes every bit of punishment that we deserve. And he gives us every bit of righteousness that is not ours, thus making peace. And that Romans 5 thing that we read for the assurance of pardon, how one man can make peace for all who believe, that's wacky. 
But Romans 5 begins to tie that together and how that's possible. And I don't have time to go into it right now. So Peter, in Matthew 16, he gets really excited. He gets really excited about Jesus being the Christ. Right? He, he's asked by Jesus, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you're the Christ, meaning you're the king. You're the anointed one. You're the one who's going to make all our troubles go away. This is going to be the best. We're going to follow you wherever you go. Everything's going to be great from here on out. We'll serve you. You make everything great. We got this. And then the very next verse says, and then Jesus brought up that he was going to have to die. And Peter says, no, 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 no. No, you don't need to go doing any of that kind of stuff. We're not that bad, Jesus. We're, we're not that far gone, right? Why, just, just you set up your kingdom and we'll kind of, we'll just ease on into it. And Jesus responds, get away from me, Satan. Your mind is not on the things of God, but on the things of men. We love living in that first part. But that second part is really when it begins to speak into our everyday self. We need reconciliation with God. And only in Christ is that possible. Right, because there's a big difference between saying, Jesus, save our world. Oh, Jesus, we need you to come and save our world. And saying, Jesus, save me. The chief of sinners, save me. Which one of those do you find in your mind and on your lips more? Is it more about them? Or is it more about you? Jesus, save me. Be my king. Be my priest. Be my Lord. And be my savior. So there's a, a new Sovereign Grace album that in the song that the uh, band is about to play is by this same group. They've put out a new Christmas album. And, um, and it's super. The very first title track is entitled, O Come, all you unfaithful. And it says, O come, all you unfaithful. Come, weak and unstable. Come, know you are not alone. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. This is much more accurate. He does not wait on our faithfulness to receive us. But he says, come all you who are unfaithful and I will make you faithful. So there's two lesson, lessons that we can sum up from this genealogy. The first is that the Messiah is up to something and it's perfect. And he's been doing it since the beginning of time and he will continue to do it until the end of time when he comes back and makes all things new. All will be well, even when it doesn't seem like it. And secondly, the Messiah can fix anything. He can fix anyone. He can fix any mistake. He can fix any family generationally broken dysfunction. He can, he can fix even the most broken of nations. He is in the business of redemption. And so what's he doing for you? I don't know. And we don't know if that's going to happen now or if that's going to happen at his return, but we know all will be made well. If he has done this kind of a redemption with his family line, he can sure do the same with ours. Let's pray.
So Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have done the impossible. You have reconciled a holy God to an unholy people. Uh, You have made a way for man to be right with you. If the message of Christmas is anything, it's that God and sinner reconciled like we just sang. And so whatever else may capture our hearts in the next four weeks, with that very truth, that because of the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God sacrificed for us, the great high priest has made a way for us to be right with him. And so would that begin to settle in our hearts that you would help those who believe to believe even more firmly? Would you help those who struggle with unbelief to believe maybe even for the first time? Would you help those who are watching online right now, who are traveling, coming back from Thanksgiving? Uh, Would you give them mercy as they travel? And would you give them even Uh, even in their car or wherever they are right now, a great sense of your presence and your goodness and your nearness. So send us out. Send us out with this great message. Everybody in the world needs to hear this is their history. The way has been made. It has been paved. And so would we tell the world the goodness of the genealogy of Jesus? We pray in your name.